You're listening to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe, a podcast dedicated to women at all stages of our health and wellness journey. I'm Christy from Christy Lee Nutrition. And I'm Cammy from This Mum's Kitchen. And together, we're here to inspire you with the knowledge and confidence to love into your mind, body, spirit, and lifestyle. Now set aside some time for you and join us on this cup-filling journey. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe. This is episode number 18, and you're here with Christy. This is a solo episode all about what to eat for endometriosis. Part one, a deep dive into optimizing fertility. So again, this question has come from the request of my Instagram followers and predominantly from a place of nutrition confusion. So I get asked all the time, what should I eat? What should I not eat for endo? And the short answer is there really isn't a rigid endo diet out there. You can't really find a printout that's just going to have two columns, you know, don't eat this and definitely eat that um, and just follow that for the rest of your life. It, it just doesn't quite work like that. Um, and food and nutrition is quite Although complicated, it's very fascinating and one of the many reasons I studied as long as I did to understand this topic. So it's worth saying that endomedical research is still in its infancy and will likely evolve, especially now that Australia has a national action plan with allocated funding to endo research, public awareness and new treatment options. So this is going to be an exciting and busy space over the next few years. So what I'm presenting for you today is the most up-to-date endonutrition research and very much the approach that I use to help my clients. And as you may have heard, this is only part one of the endonutrition story. In an upcoming episode, I'm going to be presenting a part two deep dive into managing IBS, gut health and excess estrogen. So to kick off, I'm going to talk about what exactly endometriosis is and how it impacts fertility. So endometriosis is a chronic inflammatory gynecological disorder and it affects around one in 10 women. So that is an extremely common condition, yet most people have still never heard of it. And to explain kind of in a nutshell what exactly endo is, so endo for short, It's essentially, it's a condition that results in tissue similar to the lining of the uterus growing in other parts of the body. So every month during the menstrual cycle, the uterus thickens with a lining called the endometrium. And that is where a potential egg would implant if there was a successful pregnancy. And in the case of endo, we see this tissue that's normally inside the uterus growing outside of the uterus and this could really be attaching to and growing on places like the pelvis the fallopian tubes ovaries our bowel and it's also been known to go as far as the lung and the eye which is incredible so we know that around the world this condition is affecting 1.76 billion women worldwide 1.76 billion. That is an incredible, staggering amount of people that are being affected by this. Um, And 
I think the most incredible part is actually that a large proportion of those cases are actually undiagnosed. Now, the reason that the diagnosis is so delayed is because there's a, a very significant overlap of symptoms. So um, other conditions like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, for an example. And when we look at the statistics, we see that the average woman is waiting about 10 to 12 years before she gets her diagnosis. And that is something I definitely see amongst my own clients, talking to other women with endo on Instagram. It's really not uncommon that these symptoms actually begin right after the first menstrual period, so in the first couple of years. So, you know, for me, I got my first period at 12 years old. And if this is then being delayed into someone's mid 20s and as late as the 30s and 40s um, years of age, that's a significant portion of time to be dealing with the pain that's associated with endometriosis. So the reason it's so difficult to diagnose is because the gold standard method of diagnosing is a surgical intervention. So it's called a laparoscopy, which is a keyhole surgery. So it's not a major surgery and you're not being totally opened up, um, but it's surgery nonetheless. And that means that you do need to go under general anesthetic and there are some risks involved in that. And unfortunately, other sort of less invasive techniques of investigating like ultrasound, ultrasound, for an example, really struggles to identify endo in its earlier stages. So I guess this is why clinicians really do jump to more simple diagnoses like irritable bowel syndrome, which is really just based on symptom criteria. Um, the invasive nature of the laparoscopy really deters a lot of clinicians from ordering it unless they're reasonably certain that it will result in a positive diagnosis. And a very big issue in the medical community is that endometriosis is quite poorly recognized. So you can see how so many women go from doctor to doctor to doctor without finding anybody who's able to identify what's going on with them. And unfortunately, I do hear this time and time again, that they're made to feel like the pain is all in their head. You know, ultrasounds and MRIs and scopes of all kinds aren't finding what the cause of the symptoms are. And unfortunately, a lot of it is being put down to mental health problems, which is, you know, incredible. This is you know, really a very um, big misunderstanding and a huge gap um, in, in patient care. The other really complex thing, of course, is that IBS often accompanies endometriosis. So a lot of women do say, do I have endo? Do I have IBS? Well, of course, if you do have endo, go and get it checked out. But if you still got all those bowel problems that are coming along with your endo, it means that you also have a co-diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome as well. And so you can see why clinicians find it really complicated to diagnose endo because you possibly have both. And I'm really I'm going to leave this here because I'm going to talk about it much more in part two, which will be part two of what to eat for endometriosis coming out in a few weeks. So just for anyone who's not really aware, I'll just talk through some of the symptoms of endo. It's really important to understand what the signs and symptoms are because 
if you don't have endometriosis, there might be someone in your life in your life who does and they don't know yet. They don't recognize the symptoms. And so if you do hear some of these and you think of someone that, you know, um, it's worth talking to them about this podcast and about endometriosis and getting um, some help from the doctor. So some of them include things like painful periods, pelvic pain that's not related to your period. So, you know, pain doesn't always have have to happen around that time of the month. And it's estimated that up to about 70% of women with chronic pelvic pain may actually have endometriosis. There may also be pain during sex, back, leg and crutch pain, uh, pain on doing a number two, so passing a stool. So you can see that there's a lot of uh, pain involved in this condition. Um, Fatigue comes alongside. A lot of um, abdominal bloating and discomfort is very, very common. About 90% of women with endo also complain of bloating. Nausea. Alternating bowel habits like constipation and diarrhea, and also, of course, infertility. Now, the impact on fertility that endometriosis has is one of the major reasons I'm so passionate about raising awareness. Because if we can diagnose and treat earlier, we can slow down the progression of the disease and prevent infertility into the future. And what I mean by this is that we can slow down the rate at which women progress through the endo classification stages. So there are four in total, and it starts from that very minimally invasive or peritoneal endometriosis, moving through ovarian endometriosis, deep infiltrating endometriosis, and finally at stage four, the deep infiltrating endometriosis stage two. So it moves in severity. Um, that doesn't mean that pain is more severe at the fourth stage. Some women have significant pain in stages one and two. Um, and someone who has stage four might not even know they have endometriosis until they start trying to fall pregnant and find that it takes a really long time or they're having a lot of um, unsuccess with falling pregnant naturally. So the earlier that we can diagnose, the better chance we have of conception later in life, the reduced pregnancy and newborn complications that could arise if there is a successful pregnancy. So if the obstetrician knows you have endometriosis, they can help um, with medication and management that will reduce any kind of inflammation caused by the endo to impact the baby. Of course, we would know that we can increase quality of life. That is the most important thing as well, because we see so much depression, social isolation, you know, just the fact that many women with endo can't do normal daily activities that the rest of us take for granted. Um, And we often see that there are a lot of relationship breakdowns that happen in endometriosis. So if we can stop the disease from progressing, we can actually help people get back to life and doing the things that they love. And then, of course, there's the huge financial burden. So for many women, they can't attend work when their pain is flaring. That reduces productivity it reduces um, the amount of money that you can earn um, your chance of getting a job even or the way that you're treated in the workplace and of course um, there's a huge burden of cost with healthcare visits because endometriosis really is um, something that needs to be managed by a team you've got your gynecologist a dietitian who specializes in the area 
a women's health physiotherapist. Many endo women also see an OT for help around the home and how they can optimize their, their home and their space to conserve energy. Um, you might even see someone for acupuncture, massage, um, meditation, yoga. All, there's so many aspects to it um, and all of this costs money. And of course, awareness amongst teenagers is particularly bad. Um, you know, I really do still remember being a teenager myself. I didn't want to talk about my period and I was definitely not going to talk about my period with, you know, a male doctor or any kind of male person in my life. Um, I might've mentioned it to my mum at best, but I wouldn't have known what was a heavy period, how much pain is normal. And um, unfortunately, we don't have someone else's period that we can compare to. We, we can't feel someone else's period. So we think that what we're experiencing is normal. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of young girls are going back and forth with the doctors, not getting anywhere. And poor mum and dad are trying to help, but they really don't know what to do themselves. They don't know what's going on. So the more that we can do in the space of educating teenagers is super important. So just a little bit more about fertility and endo specifically. We know that around about 30 to 50% of women with endo suffer with infertility. And so that's extremely high. It's really still de debated what the exact cause and effect relationship is between the two. Um, but we do have a couple of ideas as to why um, it causes issues. The first one being that uh, lower egg quality is an issue because endometriosis has uh, a sig significant amount of chronic inflammation that comes with it. Um, it causes inflammation in that fluid that surrounds the reproductive organs and the eggs, so the peritoneal fluid, and that can damage the DNA or the quality of the eggs in the ovaries. Because endo is infiltrating around the body and when it when it spreads, it attaches to other organs and it causes scarring, damage, uh, blockages, um, adhesions, things like that. So if it is moving to the fallopian tubes, it can cause the fallopian tubes to become damaged, scarred or, or blocked. Um, same with the ovaries. The ovaries might be sticking to the fallopian tubes or the uterus might be sticking to the bowel. Um, and because of those anatomical changes around the body, this could cause um, the egg being prevented from moving from the ovary down the fallopian tube down to you know, where it would meet the sperm and eventually implant in the uterus. This might be blocked or prevented from happening. So that's, that's quite a big concern. And then there's also the, the hormone changes um, or abnormalities that we see in endometriosis. So that there might be a malfunction of communication between various glands and organs of the body that make and communicate using hormones. So uh, as an example, um, the ovaries and the pituitary, bleh, that's a really hard one to say, <laughs> pituitary gland. <laughs> um, if that communication breaks down, we see that the little follicles inside the ovary, which are the immature eggs, fail to mature into oocytes. 
Um, and so if the ovaries are not secreting enough progesterone because um, there's this lack of communication going on, we also might see that the lining of the endometrium inside the uterus doesn't thicken and therefore create that perfect environment for an egg to implant there. So those are some of the, the main reasons why we think that endo causes such a problem with fertility. So let's talk now a bit about the nutrition, because I think this is where we have so much power and possibility to actually make a difference to our health and make a difference to endometriosis so that we can you know, avoid using so many Band-Aid therapies to, to um, manage endo. So as an example, at the minute, the best, most successful management strategy for endo is surgical. So that laparoscopic procedure, which is used to remove endometriotic lesions and adhesions and cysts, is the quickest way to reduce pain and also improve fertility. However, it's very costly to have it done. It's not accessible for everyone and particularly people in developing countries around the world. It really does attract a high amount of risk and it only provides a short-term symptom relief with symptoms really recurring within two years in almost three quarters of women. So you'd have to have a surgery every two years to keep your endo pain and fertility under, you know, being managed. It's really a band-aid solution at this point. And I do feel for the doctors who don't have much else in their toolkit to um, help women with endo. Um, and unfortunately, pharmaceuticals like medicine and, and hormone replacement type therapies are all that are available apart from surgery. And this is where I feel that with more education, we can start to be talking a bit more about lifestyle and a bit more about diet and the massive role it has to play in helping with managing endo symptoms. Now to really understand what's going on and how nutrition can be of assistance, it's you need to know a little bit about some of the potential causes of endo. We don't exactly know what causes endo yet, therefore we can't find a cure, but we do see... Um, commonalities between women with endo that give us a pretty good clue or idea as to what is potentially causing endo. So the first one is that we do know that there is a genetic link. We do see in families with, um, you know, a mom or an aunt or a sister who has endo that you, if you're, you know, in that family as a woman, you are at a much higher risk of developing endo yourself. There's also an epigenetic relationship Epigenetics means that the gene is there, but it can be switched on or it can be switched off depending on environmental triggers that you're exposed to in life. So there's a lot of study going into epigenetics at the moment and looking at what nutrition, lifestyle, pollution, exercise, stress, viruses, uh, parasites, the list really does keep going what can what is it that is triggering these genes to switch on and can we do something to switch them off that's really interesting so in endo we know that there seems to be this chronic activation of the immune system and because of 
the immune system's overactivity, it leads to chronic inflammation. So chronic inflammation is a hallmark feature that is consistently seen in all women with endometriosis, as well as excess circulating estrogen. So excess circulating estrogen stimulates the growth of endometrial tissue around the body, and it also increases the production of prostaglandins, which really cause that hallmark feature of pain and smooth muscle contraction around the body. So I've mentioned briefly before in another episode a bit about prostaglandins, and these guys are essentially hormone-like chemical messengers. They're not really hormones. They are similar to hormones in the way that they communicate around the body, but they are responsible for contracting the uterus during birth. So, you know, creating um, labor and delivering the baby, Um, but they are also involved in contracting our uterus and causing cramping around that time of the month. And then there's the gut dysbiosis. So that means the imbalance of bacteria that live in our large intestine. So in, for example, studies of monkeys with endometriosis, we see that they have a lower lactobacilli concentration and also lower gram-negative bacteria. And it's postulated that the gut microbiome of women with endo may have larger numbers of bacteria that increase the levels of circulating estrogen in the body. And this bacteria is known as the estrobilome. So gut dysbiosis is you know, it's possibly the reason why the immune system is chronically overactive because we know that 70 to 80% of all of our immune cells are found in the gut. Um, And it's also likely the reason why women with endo have a much higher risk of developing irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is known as SIBO. So you can see how this is a bit of a, a, it's a cycle. It plays into one another, um, a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. Which one comes first? Is it the inflammation? Is it the immune system? Is it the gut imbalance? We don't really know. But what we can do is we can use these this knowledge to um, change our lifestyle and our diet to essentially address these um, commonalities that we see in women and improve the symptoms and slow endometriosis growth, which is the most important thing that we need to focus on with managing endo. And I hope this has really highlighted to you just how intricately interwined hormone health and gut health really is. This is why I personally practice as both as a women's health, a hormone dietitian, and also a gut health dietitian, because bringing these two concepts together is really where we're going to get the most advanced care for women with endometriosis. So I'm going to focus today, I'm going to talk about two main areas. So I'm going to talk about inflammation first, and then I'm going to talk about excess estrogen and fertility. So so I'm going to save all of the diet information around the gut microbiome and gut dysbiosis for part two, because it kind of just deserves a whole episode on its own. Um, so let's get started with understanding inflammation. So inflammation is essentially when the body has a really high number of highly reactive free radicals that cause oxidative stress. And I'm sorry if that just went totally over your head. It's it's really hard to explain some of these science concepts in simple terms. But the best way that I can explain this is, and I've said I've talked about this before, and I use this all the time. Um, take an apple, chop it in half, 
put half of it on your kitchen bench, the other half put it in your fridge, cold, you know, wrap it up, maybe squeeze some lemon juice on top and observe which one browns faster. It's the one on the bench, isn't it? Because the one on the bench is exposed to oxidative stress. It's exposed to oxygen, light and heat and all of these elements on the skin, sorry, on the flesh of the apple are exposed. So without that protective skin layer, these, this oxidative stress will start to um, brown the surface of the apple. So try to think of oxidative stress or inflammation um, and these processes of reactive free radicals in the body causing damage to tissues, much like how the apple, the exposed flesh of that apple is becoming damaged slowly, but surely um, by the, the elements. So nutrition plays a really important role and powerful role in reducing inflammation. Of course, the the group of antioxidants is where we see some of the most impressive amount of research. Things like vitamin E, vitamin C, and um, carotenoids as well, vitamin A. These nutrients, these antioxidants, have the ability to antioxidation. You know, they they stop. Um, They fight and they neutralize those free radicals from causing more damage around the body. And there's been some wonderful, you know, um, studies that have shown that those who have higher vitamin E and vitamin C intake report less endopain and have a lower inflammatory marker in the body. So it's really simple where to get this nutrition from. And I know it gets hounded probably in every episode I ever talk about fruits and vegetables. And I'll often get people ask me, but which fruits and vegetables should I eat? Which colors? The answer is all of them. The rainbow. Eat as many colors as you can, because the more color, the more variety of nutrition that you'll get from your diet. We don't need to be focusing just on the green vegetables. Spread your wings wide. Aim for all of them. Orange, purple, red, yellow, purple, blue. Did I say orange? (laughs) Green. (laughs) There are so many types of fruits and vegetables and their colors are so impressive. Um, And I feel that this message has really failed to be taught by public health, health initiatives. Unfortunately, the food environment that we live in is too powerful. The food industry Um, wants us to eat really cheap and really, um, you know, low nutrition types of foods. And I feel that this is a much more successful initiative on the individual and group level. So for example, like in one-on-one consultations that I would be um, doing with my clients, because it's about personalizing it for each person. We're all at a different stage in our health in our health journey and our knowledge around foods and cooking skills and confidence as well. Um, and starting, you know, finding out where you are now and then helping you to see that just a little change here and a little change here can make all the difference really does take the overwhelm out of the concept of trying to hit your five serves of vegetables every day. I think a lot of us get really lost in that message. The other group that I need to talk about is the polyphenols. Polyphenols are found in fruits and vegetables, but particularly herbs, spices, herbal teas, resveratrol in red wine, that's the the red pigment you find in red wine, is also a polyphenol. 
And these nutrients, they help with reducing inflammation in a really big way. So it really does pay off to learn how to use herbs and spices with your cooking and start to slowly move away from using so much packaged foods. So, you know, if you can make your own uh, Mexican um, spice mixes, you know, or um, Cajun mixes, um, curry bases, things like that, where you can, you know, grab, get your own uh, little spice mix started um, and grow some herbs in the garden. Not only will you save a lot of money doing that, but you will get such a nutrition benefit from it as well. Another food group that really helps with reducing inflammation is uh, B vitamins. So things like folate, B6 and B12 in particular. Um, And interestingly, also an amino acid called methionine. So all of these nutrients have been shown to downregulate or switch off the genes involved in endometriosis. So that in itself is going to be a massive win in reducing inflammation and pain around the body. Some of the major sources of foods that you could get that from would be meat, salmon or fish, um, eggs, dairy, leafy greens and legumes. And I'm going to talk about dairy in a minute, but I'm going to talk about vitamin D first. And I want to debunk this dairy concept for everybody because I know that a lot of people with endo are avoiding dairy and that is potentially not a good thing to be doing. I'll talk about that. So firstly, vitamin D. Vitamin D comes from the sun, but so many of us, we work inside now and we don't, we aren't exercising as much as we should. So we're slowly becoming more and more vitamin D deficient. And even in a place like Australia where we get so much sun, Unfortunately, we're seeing huge amounts of people with vitamin D deficiency here. I think the rate is about 30% of people living in Australia are vitamin D deficient. I mean, that's something we shouldn't be seeing here at all. Um, But the reason I'm harping on about vitamin D is that it plays a really significant role in reducing inflammation, switching off autoimmune processes, and it's also been shown to reduce pain in endometriosis. And we'll find this again in dairy foods, mushrooms that have been left out in the sun. I mean, who really leaves out their mushrooms in the sun? I don't know anybody that does that. But if you wanted to, you could. Um, Oily fish and getting out in the sun, of course. So let's get on to debunking that dairy myth. I read a lot online, on Instagram, around the place that so many people with endo are removing dairy from their diet in an attempt to reduce the inflammation, to improve their hormone health, uh, to improve their gut health, immune health, all of these types of things. And unfortunately, there really isn't any good science to substantiate that. In fact, dairy being such a high source of calcium and vitamin D has been shown in studies to improve endometriosis. So as I mentioned before, vitamin D plays a significant role in reducing inflammation, switching off autoimmune processes and also reduces pain and inflammation. So cutting out dairy foods takes out a major source of vitamin D from our diet. And of course we can get it from the sun, but so many of us are not spending that time outside. And the calcium is so important, not just for endo, but also for bone health. And we know that in hormonal disorders, we have unusual um, high or low amounts of estrogen that bone health really suffers and it puts us in at an increased risk of osteoporosis um, down the track. 
So I do not recommend that you cut dairy out of your diet. I will be talking in part two about dairy and lactose uh, because there is uh, a group of people who do have lactose intolerance. And this might be why every time you eat dairy, you have some difficulty in digesting it. And finally, let's talk about omega-3. This is a powerhouse nutrient. And this is it's the big reason why I use omega-3 testing in my clinic. Because omega-3 has a powerful ability to decrease the risk of endometriosis. And it reduces endometrial survival growth. So this is so important. And most of us do not have enough omega-3 in our diet. And this is because it is quite hard to get. It comes largely in oily fish like salmon and mackerel and sardines, anchovies, things like that. But we, well, particularly in Australia, we don't eat a lot of fish. It's quite expensive to buy fish here, which is mad because we're an island. Surely we have so much access to fish. Uh, Unfortunately, because of the cost and I guess culturally, we don't really eat a lot of it or enjoy the flavor of it as much as other types of animal meats. Um, in Japan and around the Mediterranean where fish is eaten in significant portions and oh, North, um, North Europe as well, of course, Scandinavia. People in these regions have incredible fatty acid profiles. They've got a lot of omega-3 in their red blood cells and it has this anti-inflammatory protective effect. So um, if you don't eat fish, that is perfectly fine. You can opt for algae supplements If you don't, um, for example, um, enjoy fish and you're okay with having fish oil supplements, that is a wonderful option as well. And I probably put most of my endometriosis clients on an omega-3 supplement because when we do testing together, we find that omega-3 levels are super duper low and really need bumping up quickly. Now, we've just talked a lot about omega-3. Let's now talk about omega-6 because I want to go into nutrients that increase inflammation. So foods that we don't want to have in our diet so much if we have endometriosis or to be honest, everybody, I really wouldn't recommend that anybody tries to increase their systemic inflammation. So omega-6 sounds a lot like omega-3, totally different. And the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 is quite important in the diet. So if omega-6 ratios are high, as well as saturated fats and trans fats, we know that this causes more inflammation. So you'll find omega-6s in things like refined vegetable oils. Um, Trans fats are found in hydrogenated vegetable fats. Um, Saturated fats come from a lot of meat products. So I guess think of things like processed foods, like crisps, margarines, biscuits, ready-made sauces, baked goods. These all use refined vegetable oils in the making of them, um, or they're using hydrogenated vegetable fats because they're cheap. So food manufacturers love using these products. They're cheap. And of course, in the cheaper cuts of meat, like ham, salami, sausages, cold cuts, things like that, we see a lot more saturated fat in there among you know preservatives and nitrates and things like that that are really not good for our health at all. So I want to drive home here, though, that you don't need to be vegan or vegetarian to have a healthy endometriosis you know, diet or dietary pattern. It's about focusing on reducing, not cutting out. Because red meat does provide a lot of valuable nutrients like iron and zinc and B12. 
These are so important for women with endo. They're really hard to obtain from plant-based sources. Um, so my recommendation is just try to enjoy red meat no more than once per week and try to go for those higher welfare or organic types of meats if that's available to you. Um, that would be my recommendation. Okay, so you're probably all wondering how the hell am I supposed to remember all of this and put it into some sort of practical dietary strategy that I can um, sustainably eat and enjoy as well and not feel like I'm missing out on other foods. And the simple answer to that is three little words, the Mediterranean diet. And I'm going to call it the med diet for short. So if you haven't already heard of the med diet, it's a pattern of eating that is really well known in the scientific literature for its strong antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effect, as well as actions on optimizing the gut bacteria. So it's currently used as the gold standard dietary pattern for fertility and pregnancy and other benefits include reducing the risk of um, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, managing a healthy weight and also preventing cancer as well. So if you have endo and you're wanting to have a family, whether that's now or sometime in the future, you want to be following a Mediterranean diet. The diet matches perfectly with the endonutrition science that I have discussed today, and it improves fertility in two really powerful ways. Firstly, it improves egg quality by protecting the fragile DNA inside your eggs. Two, it preserves the anatomy and functioning of your reproductive organs from endo-infiltration and progression. So that anti-inflammatory effect that it has protects you in two ways. Plus, if I was going to add a third thing, it provides adequate nutrition to prepare you for pregnancy. So we can't forget that, you know, we really want to be building up your nutrition stores before you fall pregnant so that when you do, you've got all of this nutrition to provide for your growing little baby and have a healthy pregnancy. So the Mediterranean diet is that baseline foundation that you want to ensure you're following before jumping into more specific nutrition tips and tricks for fertility. I guess um, the say, uh, saying that I say all the time would be, you can't out-supplement a bad diet. And in this case, there's no point going for all those like little supplements and tweaks and tricks and things around fertility nutrition, unless we've really nailed the baseline Mediterranean diet. Now, this is very individualized and it's probably a bit beyond the scope of what I can discuss today in this podcast, but there is more nutrition support that can help with fertility. So depending if you're struggling with regular ovulation, egg quality, egg count, sperm health, successful implantation, um, maybe recurrent miscarriage is a concern for you. There are specific nutrition tips and tricks that can be implemented alongside the Mediterranean diet and medical treatments as well to help you address the underlying cause of why um, you might be having trouble falling pregnant. So I 
absolutely love helping all of my endo clients transform their current eating habits into more of a Mediterranean lifestyle. It's not something that's done in one session or overnight. And I'm sure you can agree Like, if you've been trying to do this on your own, you've probably spent years trying to figure this out. But I can tell you that if you're ready to take action on your fertility and your endometriosis, my program is only four months. So in that four months, we achieve, you know, turning your current eating habits into more of a Mediterranean pattern of eating and incorporating the, the fertility nutrition tips and tricks that is relevant to you and your individualized situation. I highly recommend if you're in this position, don't wait any longer. Unfortunately for us women, time really is ticking. Um, and endometriosis being a progressive and fast moving condition. You want to take action early with your nutrition and your lifestyle and complement it with your strategies with your fertility specialist um, or your gynecologist, other medical treatments that you are investigating to help you with your fertility. And I, I have to say this, that the Mediterranean diet, it really is so delicious and abundant with flavors that everybody enjoys. It's not a restrictive diet. It's not a weight loss diet. If you lose weight on it, that's great because that means that your body is finding some kind of balance, but it's not the focus of it. It's about filling you with nutritious foods and nutrients that is going to create the optimal environment inside your body to grow a baby. If you're looking for support and you're ready to get started, please don't hesitate to reach out. Come over to my Instagram, have a chat with me in the DM and ask me a few more questions. I do strategy calls so that we can make sure it, we are a good fit together and that my programs are going to get the results that you're looking for. So my Instagram handle is endometriosis.dietitian. Alternatively, if you don't have Instagram, send me an email. So my email is christy at christyleenutrition.com.au. And you'll also find all of this information written down in the show notes of this episode. So don't be afraid to come and have a chat with me privately. I'm never too busy to talk to someone about their endometriosis. So reach out. Okay, that's enough from me for today. So I'm just going to wrap up and um, just recover some of those topics that we talked about today. So I really started off with just going through that overview of what endometriosis is, the sort of worldwide impact that it has, and why there is a delay to diagnosis and some of the concerns around that. One of them being, of course, infertility. So we then talked a bit about what some of the underlying reasons um, of endometriosis or the causes, if you like, and therefore linking that in with why diet can be so helpful and supportive for endometriosis. So today we really focused on inflammation and the anti-inflammatory and Mediterranean styles of eating that can help with um, reducing pain. The other thing that we talked about was debunking myths. We talked about red meat and we talked about dairy which are really common foods that many people are avoiding in their diet unnecessarily and then we finished on more about the mediterranean diet so i'm going to now um, talk about excess estrogen and the fodmap approach and the gut microbiome over in part two so that will be coming out in a few weeks stay tuned for that um, there really is so much I could talk about endonutrition, but I'm having to limit myself to just a couple of these topics. 
Um, And I really look forward to seeing you all in the next episode, which is episode 19. Thank you so much for listening. We're really grateful for the time you spent with us and can't wait to do it again. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hop over to Apple Podcasts or Facebook and leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to us via the Nourish, Nurture, Breathe Facebook or Instagram pages and check out nourishnurturebreathe.com for our show notes. Thank you and until next time. Remember to nourish, nurture and breathe every day.